So we begin a new series in Revelation, so we're going to begin at the beginning of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the shining, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living when I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to those who are here with us, and for those of you who are at home or in another location listening in, uh, welcome to worship. As you know or have been uh, hearing about, we're starting a new series on the book of Revelation today, and it will run throughout most of the semester, uh, first semester of this year, right up close to, if not on the day of Thanksgiving, uh, it will end. I I want to begin with a memory of mine. Of course, it's not any of yours. But I had a New Testament professor um, 
who used to begin every single lecture this way. He would say, I'd like to begin with a few preliminary comments. Um, Those preliminary comments sometimes were a little lengthy. They always were better than his lecture. (laughs) Always. Um, We routinely said that as students. We loved his preliminary comments. He had great lectures, but those preliminary comments were amazing. And and I think one of the things he did with his preliminary comments is he kind of set the stage for us, right? He, He built out the framework and he gave us some insights concerning why what we were about to study was important. Uh, and then he would get into the details. So I wanted to use that sort of as a way of illustration. Um, this morning, I want to call these words that are inevitably a sermon my preliminary comments on the book of Revelation. That, of course, doesn't mean they're going to be any better than any of the ones that follow. I hope there will be some better sermons. But I do want to start out in a way that I frame the whole issue, that I frame our study of the book of Revelation together. So to that extent, it may be a little bit more pedantic. It may be a little bit more, shall we say, lecture-like, but I hope that it will be helpful uh, to all of us as we embark on this journey of studying the book of Revelation. I I wondered about um, starting this series and whether or not this was good timing or bad timing, right? Um, The kind of thing we're in the middle of, the pandemic. Um, If you haven't um, been watching uh, on various sites, uh, you have uh, not noticed, but if you have been watching, you would have noticed. There's all kinds of theories that are starting to come out concerning the end times and how it relates to our current pandemic. Uh, Some of them just outrageous theories, um, but very interesting. Um, They do catch your imagination. Um, Whether or not it's good timing or bad timing, I've decided to go ahead with it because originally I had scheduled this for the summer and, quite frankly, just couldn't wait any longer. We postponed in the summer, so here we go um, this morning. When we enter the book of Revelation, or to a certain extent the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, we enter, even more in the book of Revelation, an absolutely different world. When you start reading the book of Revelation, you know the landscape has changed. You understand the language and the images or things you didn't hear in the book of Ephesians or Romans or even Jesus' words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You've entered into an entirely new arena, an apocalyptic arena. It's a vision that John got from Jesus. And it includes things like dragons and beasts, but not just normal beasts. We're talking beasts that are seven-headed and seven-horned, beasts that are both lion and leopard and bear, all wrapped up into one beast. We see plagues. We see destroying angels, not little cherub angels, not little nice creatures, but ones that are destroying. We see hornets. Where in the world do the hornets come from? All of this is apocalyptic literature. 
And these beasts are strange. Um, But I love what one particular author said about the book of Revelation. It was G.K. Chesterton. He's famous for fun phrases and sayings. He's very quotable. He said, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creatures so wild as one of his commentators. (laughs) In other words, us, right? And all the experts on the book of Revelation, G.K. Chesterton said, those things are wilder than any of the beasts that John portrayed in the book itself. And it's true. There's all kinds of wild and crazy interpretations of the book of Revelation. But I want to begin by actually introducing you to four major interpretations on the book of Revelation. Uh, They are considered to be the four major categories. You could break them down in other ways. The definition could be more than what I offer. And there could be any number of eclectic views. In other words, any of these four mixed together. But let me lay out the four. Uh, The first is what is often called the historicist approach to the book of Revelation. And a historicist approach to the book of Revelation, for the most part, sounds and looks like this. The book of Revelation is a survey of church history. And typically it's stated that there are seven episodes, cycles, you might say, episodes in the history of the church that are represented by seven periods in the book of Revelation. You can see what an interpreter does with that. You try to decide when one period began and when one ended, and you try to figure out which one you're in right now. That's a a historicist approach to the book of Revelation. Um, One famous name associated with this, and many, many others, of course, uh, is Martin Luther. He embraced a historicist approach to the book of Revelation. A second interpretation or approach in understanding Revelation is what is called the preterist view, the preterist interpretation of Revelation. And basically a preterist perspective is this. Revelation is a description of events that have already been fulfilled in the past. And they happened just after or were completed just after the writing of the book of Revelation or they were completed by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. This has some interesting problems associated with it, just as all the theories do. Uh, But one of the famous theologians who would have embraced this viewpoint was Jonathan Edwards, um, one of the most famous evangelical theologians in the history of our country. A third... um, interpretation on the book of Revelation is often called the futurist approach to the book of Revelation. And this approach suggests that Revelation is a description of future events, and we wait their fulfillment 
And most of the time you hear that fulfillment played out with seven principal dispensations. Frequently, this approach is called the dispensational approach to the book of Revelation. Now, before I I end with the final one, I want to say that in each of these categories, there are multiple theories. So, for instance, the category that we're talking about now, the futurists, in that category, you can have people who are pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. You can have people who are amillennial, perhaps. It would be an odd thing. But there's all these variations within this particular view of Revelation. The final one I want to refer to, and by the way, for, for those of you um, who are listening, I, I'm going to hazard a guess that about at least 75%, if not closer to 90% of you, have adopted, whether you know it or not, some form of a futurist interpretation on the book of Revelation, even if you wouldn't call yourself a dispensationalist. It, it is by far, at least in the American church, the most popular. And by far, I think, theologically, the most problematic. I've revealed my hand a little bit there. Um, one of the most famous authors that embraces and explicates this particular point of view is um, Wolverd. Uh, he's a very famous dispensationalist. And if you want a school associated with this particular point of view, you might think of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary has honed this futurist approach very thoroughly. Um, So most people have been influenced by the futurist approach, and most people embrace it to one extent or another. There's a fourth, um, less well-known, but no less important. And it's often called the idealist interpretation of Revelation, sometimes called the spiritualist interpretation of Revelation, sometimes called the allegorical interpretation of the book of Revelation. That's just three of the terms, and there are more that designate this particular interpretation. This particular interpretation, in effect, suggests that what we see in the book of Revelation are divine themes divine themes that sometimes correspond to particular events in the past, in the present, or in the future. In other words, throughout all church history. They're major themes, and sometimes they're cyclical. Some people would say they're more linear. But the point is, it's about these major themes concerning God and the earth. So there's the four major categories. With that brief introduction, you're probably thinking to yourself, ah, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm that, or maybe you're thinking, I'm totally confused. Join a very large group of people who are totally confused. Having set aside those issues, the major interpretations, let me say something about the nature or the message of the book. 
And it is in the first 20 verses that were read for us a few moments ago. And here is the major message of the book. The major message of the book is simply this. It's a message from Jesus Christ, and it's a message about Jesus Christ. No matter what your perspective on predictions or prophecy, that is the most important aspect of the book of Revelation. These words are from Jesus Christ, and they are about Jesus Christ. You can't read the book any other way and come to a reasonable conclusion, no matter whether you choose one of those four perspectives or several of them. The primary purpose is that we know it came from Jesus and it's about Jesus. And who is Jesus? That sounds like an obvious question, doesn't it? But let me ask it in a textual way. According to this book, who is Jesus? Here's who Jesus is. He actually names who Jesus is. He calls Jesus the faithful witness. That means Jesus, the one who is at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the infallible word of God. It is Jesus who is the faithful witness concerning these words. It's not only that it comes from the heart of God, from the throne of God. He is the faithful and true witness. There's something else about his witness that is played out throughout the book of Revelation. He's the faithful witness. In other words, he is the witness who speaks the word of God into every situation of life, even up to the point of his martyrdom and death. So when you see the words witness frequently used in the book of Revelation, hearken back to Jesus, the faithful witness who is faithful even unto death. Who else is Jesus? This passage tells us he's the firstborn from the dead. That is to say, life begins with Jesus. Or to put it in another phrase, there is no life without Jesus. It may look like life, but it's not life. He is the firstborn from the dead, which means in Jesus, resurrection life exists. And because resurrection life exists in Jesus, there is, as the book of Revelation tells those who are about to go through persecution and ultimately many of them martyrdom, because of the resurrection, we do not need to fear death. It is a blip on the radar screen of humanity, the humanity that follows Jesus. It's a momentary exit from this world to the next because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The third thing that Jesus is, 
according to this description, is he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, no matter what it looks like, Jesus is sovereign over all. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Not just in the future, not just in the past, but in the present. When I was looking at this passage for, I don't know how many times, I couldn't help but think about the words of the Hallelujah Chorus. We can't have a choir right now. But if we could have a choir right now, I would ask Brian to prepare them to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Maybe, I doubt it, but maybe at the end of this whole series, we can sing the Hallelujah Chorus. If, if nothing else, we can sing it, can't we, Brian? Without the choir being here, you can lead us. <laughs> it might not be as great. Why did <laughs> I think of the Hallelujah Chorus? Because it's Hallelujah, Hallelujah to Christ the Lord. For the Lord omnipotent reigneth. For the Lord omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. That's what the author of the book of Revelation says about Jesus. He's the king of the earth. There's one final, no, two final things that he says concerning who Jesus is. This one who gives us this message is the one who loves us. This one who is the judge of all the earth and the one who punishes sin is the one who loves us. This one is the one who entered the human condition and died for our sins to free us from the slavery of sin. No longer slaves to sin. Slaves to Christ. It's the one who loves us. And as a matter of fact, he's made us kings and priests in his kingdom. Finally, this one, Jesus, is the Alpha and the Omega. That, of course, begins and ends, the beginning and the end. By the way, in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, the Alpha and Omega would have meant the first letter and the last letter and every letter in between. See how com comprehensive it is? I'm the beginning and the end and everything in between. But there's something else about the Alpha and the Omega. We realize that the Alpha and the Omega, when we study Scripture, is the one who defines history. 
the one who delivers history, the one who is over time and space. The Alpha and the Omega is not just the beginning and the end. He did not begin and he ended. He is over the beginning and the end. This is the Alpha and the Omega. That's who's speaking in this letter. So now let me break away from those um, encouraging comments to make some comments related to the mistakes that we often make interpretively. I'm sure that I'll get a lot of conversation out of these comments, and that's good. But here are multiple interpretive mistakes we make when we approach apocalyptic literature, but especially the book of Revelation. The first is taking things literally. This is a devastating first start, and it's a false start. Why? Because apocalyptic literature is never intended to be taken literally. John didn't expect that the beast that he's describing was something that the church should take literally and go on some sort of search for. Sometimes we get mixed up between the notion of literalism and taking the scripture as literally true. Those are two different things. In the Reformation, there was a bit of a old sort of a revolution, you might say, against over-allegorizing the Scripture. And one of the things that came out of the Reformation was the importance of literal interpretation of Scripture. But here's what we've often done with it. We've turned it into literalism, which is not the same thing. As a matter of fact, the word, the Latin word, two words used to describe what the Reformation theologians were trying to communicate is sensus literalis. And what sensus literalis means? It means to analyze the very literal nature of the words in their context, in their genre, in their style. So that is to say, in order to understand the book of Revelation and the literal truth of God, we have to analyze those words in their stylistic genre, the way they were intended. Not literally, but figuratively. That's got to be a starting point for us, or else we'll get off track really quickly. The second interpretive mistake that we make is crunching the numbers. I'm revealing my hand at many points. Revelation is full of numbers. Numbers like seven. Numbers like twelve. Numbers like six, six, six. Numbers like 144,000. Let me be clear. All of those numbers 
are figurative. They speak about something else. And as soon as we start crunching numbers, whether it's those numbers or others, seven years, a thousand years, periods of time, we inevitably walk into a history of famous predictive errors by using those numbers. And we make a mess of the book of Revelation. And in my opinion, we make a mess of our Christian witness. So crunching numbers is not helpful in my opinion. It seems that the book of Revelation is actually not a linear timeline at all. It is historical, and events have happened, will happen, and are happening that are in the book of Revelation. But it's also cyclical. Same themes with corresponding events happen over and over in human history. And I would suggest maybe more than anything else, it's poetical. Now, don't think me to have gone off the reservation. I'm not talking about normal poetry. What I'm talking about is John seeing a vision that was completely ununderstandable and outrageous and him pinning it in a poetic manner to try to help us understand and unveil the purposes of God in the world. It really is kind of poetic. That doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it any less historical. It's just poetic. There's a third thing that we do that I think is an interpretive mistake. And that's calling out names and events. I'm almost 60 now, and I was raised in a Christian home. And I should have sat down to try to recall all the historical despots that were linked with the Antichrist in my age. They're everywhere. Just to name a few. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and whoever your favorite enemy in the public eye is now. Right? Honestly, we've done it. We've all done it. We've named people. We've named events. We've said, this is that. And I think that's an interpretive mistake. When I was in Bible college, um, we had this rather famous teacher on the books of Daniel and Revelation. And it was a requirement. You had to take this course. And in this course, this dear man had a chart that stretched across the whole back wall of the room. It was big. Some dear lady actually created the chart for him with red and blue and yellow and all kinds of colors to depict what the book of Revelation was like and when it was going to happen and when it was going to end. 
And we would sit there and listen to lectures on the book of Revelation and look behind him at that chart. And he would routinely take chapter and verse and point to the chart and tell us that's when it was going to happen and that's how. And I couldn't help but remember a very famous preacher who's on television, who I will not name, who waxed eloquently with a gigantic chart in the run-up to the Iraq war. And oh my word, you wouldn't believe the amount of detail that went into his exposition of the book of Revelation and naming names and people and times and places, and they were all on his chart. I'm not so sure what he did with the chart 20 years later, but it's obsolete. So I think one of our errors is to call out names and call out events. Let's be honest, we don't know. A fourth mistake we make is in our earnestness to understand the book of Revelation. We actually diminish prophecy. You say, diminish prophecy? Isn't it all about prophecy? That's just it. Here's how we diminish prophecy. We suggest that prophecy is primarily and almost exclusively predictive. And as soon as we do that, we diminish the nature of prophecy. Because the predictive nature of prophecy is secondary to the primary nature of prophecy. The primary nature of prophecy is proclamation. The primary nature of prophecy is to say something about God. If you are inclined to disagree with me, I want you to take your mind back to the prophecies concerning Jesus. How many people in the New Testament, authors, unveiled the prophecies concerning Jesus on some sort of predictive timeline? Zero. None of them did. You know what the apostles did with the prophecies concerning Jesus? They turned them into theological content concerning Jesus himself. They turned them into challenges concerning how to follow Jesus. And you know what Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation do? The same thing. Their primary emphasis is following God. Understanding the nature of God and God's activity in the world and understanding how we ought to follow. It's not about dates and the predictive nature of prophecy. Of course prophecy has predictions in it. But we flip it upside down and we start there and then eventually, if ever, we think of it as gospel proclamation. The book of Revelation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of it is predictive. The fifth thing that we do, and it's an error in my opinion, 
is we choose a template when we approach the book of Revelation. We select what theologians love to call hermeneutics. We select a way of viewing it. Okay? Now, we do this all the time. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. A broad illustration of the way we do this, choosing a template or a hermeneutic, is it goes like this. If you're from the Reformation tradition, which is us, we emphasize primarily through our template when we read the Scripture, Old Testament and New, a doctrine called justification by grace through faith. We see it everywhere. On the other hand, if you're Catholic... It's likely that you look at the scriptures and you have a template that might be described as sacramental. If among Protestants you are reformed, it's quite possible that your major template has something to do with predestination. Now these are stereotypes, but you see where I'm going. And if you're from the Wesleyan tradition, you probably have a template that is informed primarily, maybe not exclusively, but primarily on the doctrine of sanctification or holiness. And if you're charismatic, you probably have a template that primarily informs your understanding of Scripture that's based on the gifts of the Spirit and Spirit-ledness. Just made up a word. There's nothing wrong with those. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with those. Actually, I embrace all of them. What is problematic is when we use them as a primary template to try to understand Scripture. In other words, for me to really understand Scripture, there's sometimes when I'm reading it that I have to say, okay, forget the Reformed tradition for just a minute. Let me think about this passage according to a Wesleyan tradition. Or, this might sound like a heresy to you, let's forget the Reformed tradition and think about this as the sacramental tradition that was delivered to us by the Catholic Church and to a certain extent by the Episcopal Church. What is there to learn here? These templates can be wonderful, but if they're our only way of interpreting the Scripture, they can become their own form of blind spots. Okay? So if you pick one of the four that I just described early in this sermon, interpretive devices for the book of Revelation, and used it as your primary template, you would inevitably have a blind spot. And you're going to miss something. So I think that's a mistake we make. And the final mistake I think we make, and I'll make this quick, is when you think you've got it figured out. You're definitely mistaken. Matter of fact, you're probably dangerous. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. No one else has figured it out, and neither will you, and neither will we. Or to put it another way, overconfidence is the enemy of understanding. That's often true. It's especially true here. So here's my final flurry. Thank goodness there's not a second service coming up. Um, <laughs> 
What's the key message or messages in the book of Revelation? First, it's encouragement to the church. This was written to seven churches that had and will experience severe persecution. And the encouragement was, don't worry, the Lord is with you, no matter what the circumstances. The second message from the book of Revelation is that God is engaged in real history. It's actually the message of the incarnation. God's not just engaged in real history as this omnipotent presence around it all. God is engaged in real history because he came in the person of Jesus Christ and walked through it and continues to walk with us right here, right now. A third message in the book of Revelation is there's a cosmic battle taking place. We don't always understand it. We don't always see it. But there's a cosmic battle taking place between God and Satan, good and evil. And on occasion, because of the book of Revelation and other parts of Scripture, our eyes are unveiled and we can see clearly. The fourth thing that the book of Revelation communicates is that God is sovereign over all the history. Like the Hallelujah Chorus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The final thing I want to say about the message of the book of Revelation is that true meaning, deep understanding about Monday through Sunday reality is found when we take every bit of our temporal world and align it with the message and the purposes of the eternal reality of God in Christ. When everything, this is so hard, my friends, when everything about our waking hours is an eternal moment because Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has claimed it to be his. Nothing is simply material. Nothing is simply basic history. Nothing is simply basic science. Nothing is simply basic psychology. Everything is understood fully in light of eternity. If nothing else, the book of Revelation ought to call us to that message. Let's pray together. Lord, you're gracious to um, roll back the curtain um, and unveil your truth to us. And we trust that you do that in your word. And that's why in this place, your word is so important. On this particular word, Lord, when we enter the book of Revelation, we realize it's a special word from God that is different. Not because it's a different message, but it's different because it helps us to see things differently. 
It's different because it encourages us to think in terms of the eternal reality, the invisible reality of the presence of God in what appears to be often an evil world. So we pray, Lord, as we study this book, that our eyes will be open and we'll be able to see not just the nature of human events and what they may mean, but the nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.